0: God speaks to us in his word in Jude 1, 5 through 16. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire." Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the, f- the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like re- unreasoning animals, understood instinctively." Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reeves at your loves, at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Hey, Pastor Ben, we've got a good idea. Why don't you preach the most complex and hard to understand text in all the New Testament right after Ivy Penwell stands up here and gives the best dissertation on kids ministry anybody's ever heard, church-wide. That was amazing, Ivy. (laughs) We are so blessed, man. Look, we are so blessed, like it's one thing to have, honestly, it's one thing to have someone uh, lead a ministry in the church that really cares about the ministry. It's a whole nother thing to have someone who is a prophetic witness, and that's what she is. She carries, she carries prophetic gifting, um, love, heart, passion, devotion. Um, she carries all of that into kids' ministry. And she, I love this, I, mean, I could go on and on, but Ivy sees that like, That is the mission field for the church, for young families, and everybody down there feels that vision. So parents, I'm just letting you know, we have the best, I realize there are better, there are other good kids directors, but I just don't know if there's a better one. So we just love you. We are blessed by you. You are the absolute best. You are perfect for our church. Thank you so much for everything you do. We do not thank you enough. Be blessed. We love you. Let's thank God for her. Man. All right. On to uh, Jude 1 5 through 16. <laughs> if you're a guest today, you're welcome. Um, this is one of the most complex, interesting, strange texts in all the New Testament. Jude is actually one of the most neglected books in the entire New Testament. There's a reason why a lot of you have never even heard of this book before, probably, and most of you for sure never read it. Um, it's because it's, it's short, one, but it's just neglected. You don't. A lot of people don't in your seminary classes or whatever, man, they're not sitting around talking about Jude. Um, but it is powerful. Jude is not easy. It's hard. What we're about to read today is really hard but it's not complex. It has sort of been given that label, complexity. It's actually not complex. It's not easy, but it's not complex. And today, I wanna invite you, as we walk through this sort of series of interesting verses together, I wanna invite you to throw out all of your, like, science fiction detective work there's some people that just love the Bible because of how weird it is at times and they turn into a science fiction detective and they, you, we can actually do that and totally miss the point, by the way. Today, we wanna get the point. Let's get the point, not complex, simple, listen to how I explain it, and let's let Jude do the work that it's intended to do, which is form the church. That's the intention. So let me catch us up to how we got here. If you weren't here last week, I'll do my best to go really quickly and clearly through what we talked about last week. Jude, blood brother of Jesus. He doesn't actually tell anybody that. He does does tell us about Jesus, but it's not as his blood brother. So I love this because Jude introduces this book as this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. He doesn't tell anyone that he's his brother, which has exactly been the first thing that I would have said. Jesus was my actual brother. We grew up together. You should listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. Jude doesn't do that. Jude says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. Now imagine that, your brother, you say, I'm a servant of my brother, my blood brother. We grew up together. I know what he smells like. (laughs) I know how foolish he acts at times. He is my master. Jesus' family actually said that he was insane while he was on earth. Do you remember that in Mark? He goes and he ministers, and religious leaders, they call him out, they say he works for the devil, and then his blood family says that he's insane. And that's when Jesus said a prophet is not without honor except among his friends and in his hometown. Well, his family, all thought he was insane before he died, and then when he was resurrected, they all called him master. Something happened to them. They became followers of Jesus, and not just a brother of Jesus. Jude says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Here's who the letter's written to. To those who are, first, called, God has saved you. Second, beloved, God has loved you and will continue to love you. You are especially, his third kept God does the keeping work of keeping you saved and beloved that's good news so essentially this is written to every Christian of all time called beloved and kept his intention verse 2 may mercy peace and love be multiplied to you the goal is for mercy for peace and love to be multiplied to you This is not an ethereal letter. This is a letter written to people with heartbeats that need to know that they are called, beloved, and kept, and he wants mercy and peace and love to be the goal and centerpiece of the letter. So today, we're actually reading a letter of love. This is a love letter written by God through Jude, and it's gonna feel harsh at times. It actually is a warning, but real love doesn't keep us from warning. So let's talk about love for a minute because we need to know exactly what love is before we're able to say that this is a letter of love. What is love? Real love is a couple things. Real love is a truth-telling love. It tells the truth. It doesn't just bypass the truth. And sometimes, a lot of times, actually telling the truth in love means that we have to warn. Parents in the room, what do you do if your child is standing on the cliff of a ravine and they don't know that they're about to fall in the ravine? Do you just avoid the conflict? Do you think to yourself, well, they're gonna be upset with me if I tell them not to jump in the ravine and just walk away thinking, man, I've really loved them. No way, no way. It is because of your love for them that you warn them. If you take one more step, you're gonna fall into a ravine. Love is a truth-telling love. It does not avoid conflict. It does not sweep under the rug. It warns. The love of God is gonna come to us today in a warning. And it's a start warning. But it is, don't get it twisted, it is actually, truly, real love. That's what Jude's letter is. In verse three, he told us his intentions last week. Beloved, remember, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, which sounds amazing, that sounds like a fun sermon to preach. We're all saved, we're all family, high five each other, let's go eat. Although, I was eager to write to you about that. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to fight for something. Contend, agonize is what the word means. For the faith that was once for all delivered for the saints. He's had to shift his original intent. I imagine Jude standing over his desk, sitting at his desk with a light burning, a candle, and he's so excited, he's got a big smile on his face. He's about to write a very encouraging letter to the church, and it's going to be epic. It's probably going to be 100 pages long. It's going to be the manifesto that the whole world is going to read and be so happy about. This is what I imagine, at least. I'm probably a little far-fetched. And then at end comes somebody that kicks the door open and says, you're not going to believe what's happening in the church. And his face falls. And he realizes, I've got to address this. What is it that he has to address? It's verse four. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. This is the moment where Jude says, I wanted to write about a certain thing, but it came to my attention that there is some absolute craziness happening in the church. He's just going on and on and on about how wrong and ungodly it is. This is where they find themselves. People who have crept in unnoticed, designed for condemnation, ungodly. They are perverting the grace of God and denying that Jesus is Lord. That's where that church found themselves. That's where we find ourselves. Because the fact is this, is that this applies so much to the people in this room today, in the church worldwide. The big thing is this, is we love Jesus as Savior, but we don't like him as Lord. That's the American church right now, 2022. 2022. And Jude comes out of the gate and says, I'm not his brother, he's not just your brother, I am his servant, he is my master. So today Jude is gonna preach. He's preaching a good sermon. And like a preacher would, he's gonna use familiar writings, familiar stories and literature that are not canon of scripture, but they are taken from other writings that people would have known. He's gonna use those to illustrate a bigger point. So we're not gonna get caught up in the weeds. We're not gonna assign a motive to this book that's not there. We're gonna take it for what it's worth, simply but hard. And we're gonna listen to what Jude has to say to us today. I love that he does this because it proves that Jude is actually after the main thing. There's, and he is preaching to us. There's a difference When it comes to teaching and preaching, any ministry guys in the room, anybody who ever wants to do this, anybody who aspires to eldership, when it comes to teaching and preaching, there's basically um, a couple of ditches or one ditch that we fall into. There are those that teach in order to teach well. And what I mean by that is they're thinking about all the ways that you have to sort of execute teaching. You hit these marks and these marks and these marks, good job well done, that was well performed. And then there are others that teach so that you can actually get the heart of God. Jude is teaching. He's not worried about how he performs. He's not worried about what it sounds like. He's not worried about how it's graded. He wants you to understand something that is very urgent. He really wants you to get it. He's gonna use illustrations He's going to use things that would have been popular in that day to illustrate the point because you have to understand what this is. I mean, it is a matter of life or death. Jude is inviting us to look back at certain examples. And what he does is, again, uses. this. Popular illustrations, it'd be no different from me talking about a, a current event, a recent historical figure, using a magazine. That's what Jude is gonna to do today. So let's jump into it, man. There's a lot of notes to take. There's gonna be a lot on the screen. I'm gonna do my best to be as clear as I can be and move through it. The big fame, theme today is this. Jesus is both savior and judge. He is savior and he's judge. Several warnings that come very swiftly, abruptly, and thoroughly in Jude. He would say this to us today, and I think God would say it to us, and he's saying it to the people of this day. It's that you, I have to explain this to you intensely because you have to get it. There is a ravine and you're gonna fall into it. It's deep, it will destroy you, and there's no turning back from it. So please, be warned today. Three specific warnings for us. The first is this. There's a warning against apostasy. Apostasy essentially means this. You do not or you no longer believe that Jesus is Lord. You don't believe his words, you don't believe the words. Apostasy means to fall away from God. Verse five, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of a land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. What Jude is saying is this, do you remember the story of the people of God in Egypt? They were enslaved. God sent Moses to deliver them. As soon as they got delivered, as soon as God saved them, They get into the wilderness and they complain, it would be better for us to go and be under the hands of the slave owner, the taskmaster, than for us to be under God's authority. And Jude tells us, this is so interesting because he doesn't just say God. He specifically says Jesus. Jesus, who saved them, afterward destroyed those who do not believe. The deal is this, is that we like to think about Jesus as just the compassionate side of God. He is so much better to understand, more familiar to us, if Jesus is just our friend, just our brother. But we don't know how to mold God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit as one. But they, in fact, are. They're not separate. There's not three different personalities. They are all very much God. Jesus is both savior and judge. The warning is this, believe that God is one. Believe that he holds the keys of judgment. The second warning, there's a warning against sexual immorality. Verse six, strange verse, I'll explain it to you. The angels who did not stay within their position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Do you remember the story about Sodom and Gomorrah? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. It was a city in the Old Testament that God brought judgment on, burned the whole city up because they were, really, it was just sexual promiscuity which is a theme throughout the Bible. God judges sexual immorality, he does. And believe me, in this room, for a lot of you, but in our culture today, God is judge over sexual immorality. It does not do for us to just be with whoever we wanna be with or be whoever we want to be. Sodom and Gomorrah was burned up. This story about the angels is compared to them. Genesis six is where we get this. I don't wanna get too much in the the weeds, but Genesis six is um, an interesting story um, about angels who um, had fallen from heaven. He's referencing them. And one of the things that happened within there within this rebellion was they left their own proper dwelling, it says, their place of authority, had relationships with women. I don't know how to describe that, nobody does. God is the only one that knows that. I'm not gonna sit here and try to describe it to you, but however you feel about that in this moment, I mean, just think about angels leaving their place of proper dwelling to come and have relationships with women. However you feel about that, how weird it sounds, and it is weird, unnatural, there's stuff happening in your brain and your heart right now that's like, ah, ooh, oh, it feels off, off, off to me. What is so interesting is that we don't feel that way about the sexual immorality of our day. And Jude would actually say, that's the point. It is just as unnatural and off for us to take whoever we want to take, for us to sleep with whoever we want to sleep with, to just cohabitate, for you to change gender or sexuality or whatever. That is every bit as unnatural as the story of angels who left their place and took on women. That's the point. There's a warning against sexual immorality. It's casual to them, it was casual to us today. There's another important thing happening here. Angels who left their proper dwelling, there's a word called autonomy, which means rejecting God's natural design and instituting your own way of doing things. It's basically this, you do you, You be you, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. It doesn't matter what anybody has to say. It's your life. Be whoever you wanna be. Autonomy, rejecting God's authority. The third warning is this, it's clear, man. There's a warning against autonomy. In verse eight, we see it very clearly. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. A, they're relying on their dreams. It's their life. It's their ideas. They are God. You are not. He is not. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. No one has the right to tell me what to do or how to live. And then they blaspheme. This basically means this. They're telling God that he's not smart enough, that he's not powerful enough, that he's not good enough, that he doesn't love enough, he doesn't have enough in him to govern my life. God is not worthy of me. God is not worthy of any of us. No one would say that in this room. You probably are a little bit like, ah, don't, is he gonna be struck down? Is the pastor gonna be struck down just by saying that? You probably feel a little weird even in this moment. Nobody would dare say it. But it actually doesn't really matter what we say or don't say. It's how we live. I'm preaching to myself. We live as though God shouldn't have authority over our lives. We speak with our life. We speak with our money. We speak with our prayer. We speak with our community. We speak with whatever. God's not worthy of my life. He is not able to govern the world. He's not smart enough, capable enough to govern my sexuality or thoughts or dreams or family or paycheck. So the three warnings, they were this, they were unbelieving, these people in Egypt, apostasy. They were following their own desires, the angels in Sodom and Gomorrah, immorality, and they were rejecting authority, um, relying on their dreams, defiling the flesh, reject authority, blaspheming the glorious ones. That's autonomy, apostasy, immorality, and autonomy. Again, Jude is using multiple examples of very known stories to drive home his point and warn the church. Six examples total of apostasy, immorality, and autonomy bookend by two examples of obedience. So here next we have this pretty interesting story about the Archangel Michael. This is taken out of one of the apocryphal books. Not part of canon. I don't have time to get into all that with you today. Just know it's not scripture. But it was a very known story called the Assumption of Moses. But when the Archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. So that's Michael as an example to us. He doesn't say, I rebuke you. He says, the Lord rebuke you. He is obedient to God to leave judgment to God. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves in this for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. Disobedience is happening here. Three quick stories and examples of disobedience that he uses. Again, Jude's preaching a sermon so that they get it. And trust me, when they read about Cain and Balaam and Korah, we have no idea. Most of us have never even heard of those people. We might have heard of Cain, but Balaam and Korah, but they would have known he wants them to see. So the first is this: the disobedience of Cain. Cain's story is a story of apostasy, of unbelief. Do you remember about Cain? Maybe you grew up in Sunday school or whatever. You've heard about Cain and Abel. Um, If not, Cain and Abel were the two boys, two children of Adam and Eve. Well, they both bring a sacrifice to God. Cain brings fruit from the ground. Abel brings the most prized possession that he has. It's this calf, and he brings all the fat, and he brings basically everything. It's a good and worthy sacrifice. God rejects Cain's sacrifice and accepts Abel's. Cain gets so furious that he eventually murders his brother. But here's what God said to him before he murders his brother. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching at the door. It's not here for your well-being. Its desire is contrary to you. Cain disregards the word of God. He says, I won't be punished. Sin is not contrary to me, it's for my good. He murders his brother, Abel, out of jealousy. David Helm says it this way in page 361 in his book Jude. By his words and his deeds, Cain preached that God doesn't mean what he says. He killed Abel because he believed that God's word wasn't true. There would be no destruction for the wicked, he thought. His punishment? Genesis tells us that Cain was condemned to wander the earth aimlessly for the rest of his life. No compass and no home. Apostasy, unbelief. Second is immorality, the story of Balaam. Numbers 31 tells us that Balaam, with the people of God, convinced them to be promiscuous with each other and to also be promiscuous with the people outside of the camp of God. Rampant immorality, sexual immorality. Moses comes against them following God's word to him. There's great battles that sort of purge the people of God. Balaam is killed. And the third is this, autonomy, rebellion. Korah is our example. Korah was in the camp of Moses as well. Korah does what a lot of us do and what I really champion at times in Hollywood movies. He gathers a bunch of people to rise up against the empire. Moses, the emperor. We love this, man. I'm all about it, to be honest with you. I've got a pretty solid rebellion streak in me. We love it in Hollywood. We love it in our lives. It's a good story. Rise up. Take over oppressive leadership. The problem is it gets to the place where all leadership is oppressive leadership to us because we hate leadership. We hate authority. That's part of the fall. God uses Korah as an example. Here's what Korah did. He gathered 250 leaders from Israel and they came to Moses and he said basically this, Who do you think you are, Moses? Why can't we lead? Why can't we be the people in charge? These are all really good people, able to lead. Who makes you be God's man? That sounds good. (laughs) I'd probably be right there. I probably would be Korah. Sounds like a valiant effort. But here's the thing. The problem with all of this is that God really does institute authority and it's for our good. In some ways it represents him, although it's imperfect. So what happens is Moses falls on his face. He makes this outrageous sort of deal. He tells Korah, okay, for whatever reason, you, ha- you think that I've just risen to this and that I wasn't appointed by God. Moses says, I didn't want this, God appointed me. Man, I can identify with that. He says, if you're right, then I'll bow down. But if you're wrong, and just to prove that you are very much wrong, then God will open the earth, split the earth open, and will swallow you alive into Sheol. Number 16, and the earth opened its mouth, and swallow them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their gods. Jesus is both savior and judge. It does not work to say I follow Jesus, but I hate authority. I say that trembling a little bit as your pastor because I know what that means for me but I'm telling you, I'm not always good at it. But my job is to be the first to submit to authority in this church. Submit one to another. Jew tells us that this is not a story about them. This is not a story about others. This is not about somebody else. This is about us. People are among us. They have crept in unnoticed. And not just that, they've crept into our own heart. They are us. He describes it so well in verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. As they feast with you without fear. What does that mean? That means they're in the home, they're in the dinner, they're the come, everybody take the table of the Lord but with no repentance. No fear of their own sin. It's just happy-go-lucky Christianity. Shepherds feeding themselves Waterless clouds swept along by winds, they're fruitless trees in late autumn. They are twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of, of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Later in verse 16, he says, "These are grumblers, malcontents. following their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage It's self-explanatory, but just if you need help, I'm going to explain a little more. These are hidden people. They have crept in unnoticed. They are dead, but they look alive. They have all the right words and phrases. They can say the right thing. Their prayers are good prayers. They're true prayers, but they're actually a tomb. They've just cleaned the tomb and bleached it and whitewashed it. armchair quarterbacks who talk a lot, who have a lot of opinion, who have a lot to say, but they don't have any real skin in the game. They're not willing to actually sit with people and cry and hold their hands and read the Bible. But they sure do have opinions on everybody else that does that. They only care about themselves or their own rights. They're not actually servants. They do serve, kind of, they look like servants, but really what's going on in their heart is they just want to be seen as a servant. But that person wouldn't dare take a call late at night. They complain. They're ungrateful. They forget God's goodness. Reject authority. See themselves as the highest power, the highest position of authority. They they don't repent. This warning is harsh, but it's real. It's straight out of an endless reservoir of love. It is the love of God today that talks to us through Jude. God, through Jude, is inviting us to wake up from sleeping, to set our eyes on him, to turn an about face and repent. There's two examples in this story of an angel and a man who allowed God to be judged and not themselves, Michael and Enoch. Michael could have assumed authority, but he didn't. According to this story, he said, the Lord rebuke you. Enoch the same, he said, the Lord will rebuke you to a group of people. That's a part of our example today is to look to God as authority over our lives, to repent from sexual immorality, to say, God, how you've designed me and designed my life is the way I'm gonna live, not perfectly, but I'm gonna repent. Why do we struggle with this? Why is this so hard? This is not a crowd builder, by the way. This sermon, not a crowd builder. I don't think the Bible builds crowd. It builds churches. Why do we struggle so much with this? Why is it so hard to hear that we are sinful and we need to repent? How have we forgotten that it's actually a loving God that tells us that. I think Jude would tell us today, wake up, wake up. You've forgotten something very important. You need a savior and we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. How arrogant of us, how arrogant of me, how arrogant of you to just sit and act like we can say the right things and live a certain way and we're fine. It's not true, it's not true. To come to Jesus means to come with all of you and to come for all of him. Not just friend and savior, but Lord and master. If you are a Christian today, you are saying that I am denying myself and laying down my life to follow Jesus. Lay down your life. That is an ongoing thing. It's a hard message, it's a harsh warning, but we need it today. Deny yourself, lay down your life, repent. Do you lack belief? Do you struggle with belief? Man, welcome to the club. You know how we fight for belief? We go to Jesus. Jesus is the perfect example of submission and obedience. He who did not see equality with God a thing to be grasped humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. You cannot believe in Jesus. You cannot flee from sexual immorality. You cannot properly submit to the authority of God and his authority on earth without going to God. And that's this, that's why the point of this whole thing is you need Jesus to follow Jesus. You can't see him as master without submitting to him. Hebrews sums it up for us, I love this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, Two things are happening in the room, two assurances. I know without a doubt there are lots of us that feel the pull of God today. You feel the discipline of God. The first thing that you have to do is not ignore it. We just aren't promised tomorrow. Don't ignore it. Also, if you're a Christian in the room and you feel the Lord leading you to repentance, maybe there's things he's put in your heart and your head, that's a good way us to be assured that we are God's. He disciplines his kids. You can know that you belong to God today if he's bringing discipline into your life. Maybe you don't know the Lord. Maybe you need to repent today and just follow Jesus for the first time. Don't delay. Actually do it. And Maybe you do follow Jesus, but he's bringing things to your mind right now. I want to invite you. Repent. Repent. Actually repent. Say, Lord, here I am. I'm going to lay down my life again for you. We're about to take communion together. We do this every single week. Trust me, I hear it all the time. I have multiple conversations with people about how weird it is for them to take communion every week. There's a reason why we do it, because it's actually a meal. It's a table of repentance. It's a table of remembering. It's a family meal. It requires faith to come to the meal. It's more than just a symbol. We do it every week because the Bible tells us when we do it, remember God. And we need the refresher. So if you're a Christian in the room, come today and repent as you take the table. Just re-up, just say, Lord, I do, I want you to take control of my life. I have my life. Show me, Jesus, how to walk. Show me how to live. Show me how to follow you and lay down my life i preaching to myself, I promise you. If you're not a Christian, don't take communion. It wouldn't make sense for you to. It's not right for you to, and I mean that. I know this is awkward, I hate it. I hate it, we do our best to make this the most hospitable place to people who don't follow Jesus. We want you here, we want you to invite your friends, Christians that don't know the Lord, but I cannot be true to the word and invite people who don't know Jesus to the table. And it wouldn't make sense, it's a meal of faith. It requires faith to take it. So if you're not a Christian, please don't take the table. Instead, one, know that we're proud of you for being here. We love you so much. And if you have questions about Jesus, maybe just pray a simple prayer. God,
0: reveal yourself to me. And I would love to talk with you. Let's stand together.